What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a crowd podcast. Rosenberg, H Bump, Sugar Ray, Pam and Jump, Brando, The King and I, and the Catcher in the Rye, Eisenhower, Vaccine, England's got a new queen. Oh, you're getting up there with the queen. I ain't gonna drop it back down now for the podcast. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to episode 24 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that explores post-war history and all the reasons why the world is as it is today. All done through the lyrics of a number one smash hit from the legend that is Billy Joel. I'm Tom Fordyce. This is Katie Puckrick. Hello. Katie, are we ready for the next part of our glorious adventure? You know what? I'm I'm never ready for anything, (laughs) but uh, I get there in the end in a very slapdash fashion. So today the topic is Queen Elizabeth II Billy's literal lyric is England's got a new queen So this is a strange one Katie because I guess when this coronation happened no one would realistically have expected that uh, the same monarch might be on the throne all these years later. Yeah. We've had no idea that her influence would continue on and on and on. Well, uh, and and more importantly to us and to Mr. Billy Joel, uh, Queen Elizabeth is the only person in We Didn't Start the Fire who's still doing now what she was doing at the point that she pops up in the song upon her coronation in now 1953. that is a We Didn't Start the Fire fact. Yeah, there you go. Now, I I don't know that I ever can even remember where I was, what I was doing the first time I ever was aware of Queen Elizabeth because she's just always been around. Yeah, I remember when I was really young, the Silver Jubilee, because it led to some fantastic street parties that when you were four years old um, were the highlight of the summer. But also, as you get older and you listen to music, you're aware of the reaction to the Silver Jubilee, of all the punk rock stuff that was going on, and the Sex Pistols, and their reimagining of all that stuff as well. God save the Queen! The fascist regime. Oh, she ain't no human being. (laughs) Johnny Rotten, such a way with words. Okay, well... Well, we're shooting the breeze here. Clearly, we've come to the, the very edges of our knowledge on this topic, which is why it is now time to bring in our esteemed expert. She is an author, a renowned historian, and a veteran of our podcast, We Didn't Start the Fire, because she was our H-bomb expert. And, oh, we had a blast with that one. <laughs> she is also a professor of history at the University of Oxford. Her name is Margaret McMillan. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you very much. Nice to see you both. Nice to see you. So can you set the picture for us? What was going on in Britain after King George died? What was life here like? Britain was still recovering from the Second World War. It still had rationing. Um, Rationing was not going to be completely finished until 1954. 
if you went to London, as I did as a 10-year-old, you, you two make me feel very old indeed, because I actually <laughs> remember where I was when the coronation took place in 1953. But if you went to London in the early 50s, as I did, there were still big holes from the bomb damage. There was still really a sense of a country that had come through an extremely difficult time. And I think life was still difficult for a lot of people. The, the post-war labor government had brought in the National Health Service and the welfare state, but life wasn't easy. And so I think there was a sense that Britain was recovering slowly. It had won the war, but it was also in the process of losing its empire. It was no longer world power. And so the early 50s weren't an easy time for the UK at all. Was there a lot of excitement, Margaret, at that time? Was a coronation seen as it would be today, which is a sort of a great public entertainment? Or was it seen as this sort of part of this rich heraldic tradition? I don't think from what the observations of the time say that there was a lot of excitement at first. I mean, a lot of people thought, oh, you know, we've got other things to worry about. But it built, as these things do. I mean, people who six months before the coronation said, well, I'm not going to bother to watch it, watch it went out and bought television sets or found out if their neighbors had television sets so they could watch it. And so by the day of the coronation, I think there was an awful lot of excitement and there were street parties and celebrations all over the UK and, and indeed around a lot of the Commonwealth as well. And I think it was seen very much as a sort of new era for Britain. I think there was a certain amount of hope, you know, maybe things are really going to get better after the dark days of the war and the post-war period. Yeah, it sounds like, Margaret, that perhaps it's a little bit of a coming out party for, for the country after being battered and bruised during World War II. A lot of people said so at the time. And there was talk of a new Elizabethan age, um, harking back to Elizabeth I, the great, the great forerunner of Queen Elizabeth II. And Britain is going to be back. It's going to be going out on the seas. It's going to be bold. We're going to be rebuilding. Um, there were children's magazines called the New Elizabethan, and a, and a train that ran from King's Cross to Edinburgh was called the Elizabethan. So I think there was sort of hope that maybe we finally turned a corner. Do you think that there was a, a gear shift for the country and indeed the world uh, for Britain to have a female monarch? I don't think it was that difficult for the British. After all, for most of the 19th century, they'd had Queen Victoria um, as their monarch. And there had been other women monarchs, of course, Elizabeth I, Queen Anne, Queen Mary in British history. I think people were struck by how young the new queen was. Uh, she came, became queen at a very young age in her early 20s because her father died tragically very young. And so I think there was a lot of sympathy for this young, small, rather frail, not frail looking, but, but rather um, young looking woman coming into, into this rather heavy responsibility. I suppose she was an accidental queen as well, wasn't she? Because of the abdication of Edward VIII. So there would have been a large part of her childhood where she's not expecting this, where she doesn't see this coming. Well, I think her father certainly hadn't seen it, hadn't seen it coming and, and I think was thrown into an office which he really didn't want. I mean, as you know, he was painfully shy. He had a very bad stammer. Um, I think the Queen Mother, his wife, Queen Mother, as she later became, often felt that actually the responsibility of being king had probably uh, helped to undermine his health and, and brought about his early death. But the Queen had been brought up, um, Queen Elizabeth II had been brought up really from her teenage years to expect that she would be queen. And so I think it wasn't a shock to her in the way that perhaps it was to her father. What kind of preparation would she have had as a teenager for her eventual, eventual role as the queen? In those days, the royals were still educated at home. And so she and her sister, Princess Margaret, had governesses and then tutors. 
And the Queen was given lessons in British history, um, lessons in the British Constitution by sort of eminent scholars from around the UK. And Princess Margaret apparently said, oh, that sounds interesting. Can I come along? And she was told, no, it's only for Princess Elizabeth because she's (laughs) the one who's going to be Queen. And so I think she did have a fair amount of of preparation about what her roles were, what her responsibilities were, um, what her her position was going to be before she became Queen. Did you get the sense that maybe Princess Margaret would have been better suited as the queen, because like you indicate there that she has a little bit of gumption and get She's up and go. She's rock and roll, isn't she, Princess Margaret? Yeah. Well, w- would she have liked being queen? I mean, you know, being queen <laughs> is, is a really heavy job, and you have to do an awful lot of things, which to a lot of us would seem really dull and, and repetitive. I mean, you know, going and opening endless things, talking to people, being nice all the time. Given Princess Margaret's life, I find it hard to imagine that she'd sit there patiently at flower show after flower show or, or looking at prized turnips. <laughs> well, yeah, when she could be hanging out with Mick Jagger in Mystique. Well, you know, it's an alternative, isn't it? <laughs> it's a different kind of turnip. What about negotiations over her husband's Philip's role? I gather it wasn't smooth sailing, trying to factor him into the, to the protocol and the hierarchy. It's difficult to know, of course, what actually went on, but I don't think the Queen herself was so much involved. But what Philip was up against in this and as much else was a very stuffy set of courtiers who were very used to doing things the way they'd always done in the pre-war period and didn't see the need to change anything very much. And one thing that came out in, in the recent discussion of Prince Philip after his death was just how frustrating he found this. I mean, even changing small details, he was told, oh, well, we always did that in Queen Victoria's day. You can't change it. And so I think he wanted to be involved, and I think the court collectively didn't want him to be involved. And I think in the end, the queen saw her role as as the monarch and was prepared to take his advice, but she saw her role as as receiving the documents, reading the documents, and asking for his advice, um, not as a partnership. There's so many fascinating little subplots, I think, with the story, Katie. One uh, that I found which I'm really interested in is the story of the man who's chosen to, to design her gown. So there's a special gown for the coronation. Um, and the name of this guy is Norman Hartnell. Now, he doesn't sound like he is cut from the cloth, if you pardon the pun, that you would expect of someone who's going to make the Queen's cloak. He grows up in a pub in South London that is still there. It's called the Crown and Scepter. It's the top of Brixton Hill and the South Circular. And then he is, uh, it would appear, a gay man in a period where you can't be outwardly gay. He is known as a confirmed bachelor. And yet he's the one who's chosen to make the new queen's dress. Wow, a little uh, diversity there factored into the equation. And also the fact that the dress itself was somewhat of a impediment to her... <laughs> ambulating down the aisle to get to get crowned because it was so gosh darn heavy. Apparently she needed a little push at the beginning of her... Uh, yeah, apparently she says to the Archbishop of Canterbury, if this can be, be believed, when she gets to, to Westminster Abbey, the, the five and a half metre cloak is not only heavy, but there's some sort of friction issue that they hadn't seen coming between the, the cloak and the carpet in Westminster Abbey. So apparently... The Queen turns to the Archbishop of Canterbury, which sounds like a joke, and says, get me started. (laughs) Which I imagine was a shock for the Archbishop. It's not the thing he expects to hear from the new Queen. Well, it's, it's, it's a lovely story, if it's true. I mean, it must have weighed a ton 
Um, the dress itself was, was white, but it had been embroidered with all sorts of emblems, with sort of royal emblems and the emblems of the Commonwealth. And so, for example, for Canada, my country, there was a maple leaf somewhere on the dress. She did have a large number of lady, ladies-in-waiting, and I think they practiced a lot. And I think they were able to pick it up and, and sort of move it along. But it was all very heavy. I mean, the crown was very heavy, uh, both crowns. And, and she practiced with the heaviest one, apparently, beforehand. She'd sit there in Buckingham Palace with, with the crown on her head, just trying to get used to it. <laughs> you can imagine wearing something, well, it's five pounds. Yeah. You know, it, we, none of us would, would find it easy. Yeah, so she's probably like popping it on while she's doing the washing up or I don't know what kind of household chores the queen does, but whatever. She's probably having to like work on her neck muscles to, <laughs> to, to toughen them up for that crown. What uh, impact did her youth have on her approach to the job of queen? I mean, did it did people uh, cut her slack or did they expect less of her or was there kind of more excitement about her because she was so young? Perhaps all of those. I mean, I think there was a lot of sympathy. People said, you know, she's so young and what a responsibility. And I don't think perhaps most people at the time realized just how much her life was going to be tied up in being the monarch. Um, you know, it, it looks like a sort of wonderful sort of fairy tale from outside, but I mean, she basically was signing on at an early age in her 20s to a very long period of service, which she took very seriously indeed. I mean, anything that's ever been written about the queen, and I, I'm sure I believe it, is that she sees being queen as something that is for life. Um, and that it's something that she has to do very seriously. But I think on the whole, I mean, there was, there was a very interesting British sociological survey which had gone on through the 30s and the Second World War and into the 50s and 60s called Mass Observation, where they got all sorts of people all over the country to write diaries. And the predominant theme that comes out of those diaries is poor young thing. I mean, you know, isn't she young? And, and, and also younger people thought, well, you know, this is actually rather nice. I mean, nice to see someone that young getting onto the throne. The day itself, Margaret, seems to have both changed society and reflected it at the time. The number of people who were lining the streets of London, the number of people around the Commonwealth who are watching, the number of people who have never owned or rented a television before who do so just to watch the coronation. It was just the beginning of the age of television and the BBC was just beginning to become a television broadcaster. I mean, it had done it for special occasions, but it was now becoming something that was part of people's lives. Um, people bought um, some, some, there was two million television sets, I think, in the UK at the beginning of 1953. And by the time of the coronation, there were two and a half million, which gives you an idea of the increase. And that increase was going to go on. And people rented sets, especially to watch the coronation. And if you didn't have a television set, you went to your neighbors or you invited yourselves over. I mean, they had things called coronation parties where large numbers of people gathered around a television. I mean, it was something, it was the first, it wasn't quite the first big televised event in the UK because George VI's funeral had been televised. But this was a much more celebratory occasion. I mean, people really were having fun and they you know, got out the wine and the beer and they, they had whatever they ate. Um, hot do they didn't eat hot dogs in England, did they? They ate sort of sausage, <laughs> sausage rolls. Bad sausages. Sausages. Yeah. Sausages. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talking about the celebrations, Margaret, I was reading that uh, on the Korean Peninsula, Canadian soldiers in the Korean War acknowledged the day by firing red, white, and blue colored smoke shells at the enemy. 
So that's like a, a fun way to try and kill people and commemorate the new monarch at the same time. Well, good, good for us. Speaking as a Canadian, I'm very proud of them. <laughs> and do, what were your memories uh, as a child? Because, of course, yeah, you were part of the, the Commonwealth there in Canada. Yeah, and Canada in those days, like Australia and New Zealand and other parts of the Commonwealth, was still very much affected by what went on in Britain. And I, so I remember before the coronation, we all had scrapbooks and we learned about the orb and the scepters and the, this and that, and we drew pictures of them. And a lot of neighborhoods, as they did in Britain, had coronation pageants. And in my neighborhood, we had a coronation pageant. And to my fury, because I was very tall, <laughs> as I still am, I had to play Prince Philip. Oh. <laughs> I think it may have affected my life forever. <laughs> how, did, how, was, how was footage um, watched in Canada? Because I'm assuming they couldn't do live transmissions at that point from Westminster Abbey to Canada? Well, no, that's a very good question. I don't remember. I do remember being taken. And of course, those days, televisions were very small. I mean, about the size of a computer screen, a very small computer screen, and it was black and white. But I remember being taken and seeing these black and white photos of carriages going down the mall in a rather jerky fashion. It can't have been live, I suppose. It, that never occurred to me. Perhaps, perhaps the footage was flown over. It, but it was, in fact, flown over, Margaret. Um, apparently, bombers, especially commissioned, flew over the filmed ceremony straight over to Canada. And uh, America got it the same way as well. So, um, yeah. Oh, and, and also Australia. So Qantas got involved and they were, were uh, showing. It wasn't the live broadcast, Tom. So then it, it would have been the filmed the film. So that's what you would have seen, Margaret, as a child. Yeah, and I think we listened to it live on the radio because there were live radio connections in those days. And they had, the British had this incredible announcer, Richard Dimbleby, mm. who became the sort of voice of, of well, not quite the voice of God, but you know what yeah. I mean. And he had this wonderful sort of sonorous voice and now Her Majesty approaches Westminster Abbey, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> um, so I think we listened to bits of it live, although it would have been very early in the morning for us. You mentioned drawing as a child those coronation accessories the the scepter and the the orb um i was reading also there were bracelets there was a stole there was a robe royal um there was the sovereign's scepter with the cross and the sovereign scepter with the dove and the sword of the state oh my goodness like so much Ritual. What what does that all mean? Do you have any idea about all that stuff? The accessories. Well, we all learned about it at the time. If I could find my scrapbook, I probably have all sorts of notes about it. But a lot of it actually um, had crept in over the the 19th century. Was very keen on medieval things, and so a lot of it was reviving medieval traditions. And a lot of the pieces being used were relatively new because during the British Civil War, Parliament had melted down a lot of the royal jewels and the royal regalia. And so things like the orb were actually made in 1661 when oh. Charles II came back. But um, you know, there was this sense that these go right back to the Middle Ages. You know, William the Conqueror might have used them. And I think for the most case, they were a bit newer than that. But they all had a significance, which at the time, I think we all knew um, quite well. Katie, I love the way that the nation and then the Commonwealth try to mark the occasion as well. So the, I know it seems obvious now, but I had no prior realisation that Coronation Chicken dated from the coronation. Oh, there's a reason for that mess. <laughs> but also, Margaret, it seems looking at the ingredients for Coronation Chicken which is basically chicken mayonnaise and curry, yellow curry powder, it looks suspiciously like 
the Jubilee Chicken, which came out for the Silver Jubilee of George V. It sounds like they haven't made it's slightly sort of repurposed an earlier recipe there. <laughs> well, it's become a sort of British dish, hasn't it? I mean, there was actually a competition to create a dish that could be served to overseas visitors when they came to the UK. And the winning dish was coronation chicken. And the curry powder, I suppose, was a slight nod to the Commonwealth. The other story I love, Katie, is the idea of the royal oak or the coronation oak. So they took acorns from the oaks in Windsor Great Park and then spread them, shipped them around the Commonwealth and planted them in parks and schools. So there are probably people to this day taking shelter under royal oaks or coronation oaks. There's no escaping Queen Elizabeth's <laughs> influence. Okay, that is a cavalcade of information. I need to pause. I need to digest. And then I will come back to you with more hunger for facts. Let's have some ads. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. And Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs. I like the guest list. Uh, some of the notable guests on the coronation were uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, George Marshall. So he, uh, he was repping the old U.S., but the star of the show was the six-foot, three-inch Queen of Tonga, who was <laughs> oh, yeah. – what was the story with her? She, she got rained on, Margaret, and uh, people liked that she was jolly while she was getting rained on in her carriage. <laughs> oh, she was the great hit of, of the whole sort of coronation, both arriving and leaving Westminster Abbey. I mean, she sat in an open carriage. The weather was awful. It was sort of raining on and off, and she was very large – and very cheerful. And she sat there smiling away. She refused to have the hood put up. And opposite her was another monarch. And I'm trying to remember, it was a very small and very miserable looking man <laughs> who looked as if he, you know, would rather have been anywhere else. But she she became sort of the unexpected hit of the whole thing. Queen Salote, I think was her name. Um, she became an instant heroine. Anyway, no, she was wonderful. I've never forgotten her. I love it. I believe it was her first trip out of Tonga as well. What a trip for your first one. Yeah. So she, she made a splash. Wow. You know, she was so brave and it was horrible. You know, and people had slept out on the pavement and everyone was wet and she just beamed. Yeah. I don't think she even carried an umbrella. She just sat there looking absolutely wonderful. Amazing. Yeah. So she just conveyed that total spirit of joy and celebration. Yes. And she, yes. she embodied it in one person. Yeah, no, she was really lovely. I mean, it's, you know how you, it, you, it's things, and no one was expecting, I think, her to be sort of the star of, of, of the procession. But anyway, it was lovely. What, what else would have taken place that day or in the days surrounding the coronation, Margaret, to market? We talked about your scrapbook, but were there magazines coming out and special editions of the newspapers, all that sort of stuff? 
Oh, yeah, you can imagine um, all sorts of stuff coming out. And of course, it was a fantastic sort of money spinner for the press. They had special coronation editions, and we all got sort of maps of the coronation procession, and we got lists of all the regalia, and we got lists of everyone who was going to be walking through Westminster Abbey. Um, there were special mugs, there were special pens, there were special tree planting ceremonies, there were special maypole dances, there were bonfires. I think one of them actually burnt something down, but you know, it was all seen as good fun. <laughs> I like this detail that uh, because there were so many people involved in the actual procession, I mean, there's foreign royalty, there's heads of state, and so many carriages, that uh, they needed volunteers to be footmen. So they drafted in wealthy businessmen and rural landowners to uh, supplement the insufficient ranks of the regular footmen. I think I didn't know that, but they also had to borrow some carriages because they didn't have quite enough. I mean, a lot of the old, you know, carriages which aristocratic families would have had had been fallen to pieces or been locked up. So they borrowed some from film. I think they borrowed about seven from movie studios. Fantastic! It was a real life fairy tale princess then. Wow! Yeah. So I have asked my dad for his memories of the coronation. So my dad was born in 1942. Do you want to hear his memories of yes, it? Yes, yeah. Okay, so this is from a text message he sent me. He says, um, so he would have been, what, 12? 12. Um, As a big group, we sat in the lounge in a big circle around the small black and white TV with a magnifying glass on the front. There was a most unusual amount of food and drink available. The most memorable bit was the Queen of Tonga, smiling and waving in the rain in an open carriage. I also remember being impressed by the synchronisation of the guards marching and being bored by the church service. And then he adds, he adds, Mum, so my mum, Mum remembers being allowed, so she grew up in rural Essex, Mum remembers being allowed to go to the village to watch it on the TV of the manager of Barclays Bank. It was a jolly affair with lots of people in the room. They didn't have a TV at home, so it was very exciting. I think it's interesting that uh, this event drove so much technology and sort of forced people to become familiar with it in a way it was sort of like the porn of its day, (laughs) because they always say that porn was the driving force behind like home filming and things. So, yeah, I'm I'm doing this is a a strain to to link the coronation (laughs) and porn, but I'm I'm trying to people. I'm trying to. So, Margaret, can you give us some insight into what? the woman under the crown was like? Because she seems to have had incredible discipline and stamina, like as even as a young monarch. What was she like? Well, I think in many ways, what we see is, is, is what she is, someone with a very strong sense of duty. I mean, within two weeks after her husband died, she was back doing public engagements and she seems i you know i don't i don't know her i've i if i've met her it's only to sort of you know do a curtsy and and, and say nothing wow what a but, humble brag margaret <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well i think i did i think i did meet her once and, and the duke of edinburgh but as i say i just did my rather hopeless curtsy and, and didn't say anything but you know I, I think she has worked day in day out um what she's like at home who knows i mean i think one of the things that she has done quite successfully is is keep her privacy. And people say that she's devoted to her family, devoted to her corgis, devoted to her horses, of course. Apparently, as she was leaving for Westminster Abbey, someone said to her, are you nervous? No, she said, I've just had very good news that my horse is doing very well in its trials. (laughs) So I think she's someone who has hobbies she's passionately devoted to. But as I say, I think someone 
as we see in public, with a very strong sense of, of duty. And that seems to have been there right from the beginning and is still there. You know, she does seem quite steely. Um she can also subtly troll. I'm thinking of her insisting on driving the king of Saudi Arabia when he visited the UK, sort of highlighting the fact that women aren't allowed to drive in his kingdom. So she was sort of rubbing his face in it. And then also there's that idea that there's coded uh, brooches that she wears on her lapel for, you know, to kind of undermine, to signal support or perhaps undermine whatever world leader she's uh, meeting with. Gosh, think of being watched even to even to your brooches. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. it must be you know, you, it must be very difficult to live in that sort of gaze the whole time. Would there have been any opposition to the coronation in a way that we referenced at the start of the episode, Margaret, and talked about the reaction or the parallel reaction against the Silver Jubilee in 1977? Was Britain fully behind the monarchy at that point, or was there a, a Republican strain in the country? Um, there weren't that many Republicans there. There are more today, probably, I think. I mean, there were the usual complaints from what you might expect. Um, you know, trade unionists who said, what are we wasting this money on? Um, we live in a class-ridden society. Why do we need a monarchy? But on the whole, actually, at the time, there were very few such grumbles. And, and interestingly enough, even in places like India, which had become a republic, um, there really wasn't much sense that, you know, we, we don't want to be part of this commonwealth that's headed by, by a monarch. So, no, I, don't, I didn't come across much of that at all. Do you have any inklings, Margaret, about the future of the monarchy after Elizabeth? Well, it's a big question, isn't it? Or one of the big questions. I think we all have inklings, but very, very difficult to know. Um, you know, there is a Republican minority in this country, but how strong it is and, and how much it carries any weight is, is everyone's guess. Um, it won't be the same, presumably, once the Queen is no longer there. I mean, she's a different personality from her son. And Prince Charles, at the moment, is not seen as favorably as the Queen, but that can change. I mean, these things go up and down. And I think at the moment, I don't see any very strong wish in Britain to get rid of the monarchy. What will happen if the United Kingdom breaks up, of course, is, is another matter. There is a Republican movement in Australia, but when they tried to change their constitution, it caused such divisions. I think they basically left it for generation. And I think more or less the same thing in Canada. You know, we've got other things to worry about, and it's not something that we want to spend a lot of time arguing about. So it will be a different sort of monarchy. I mean, Prince Charles has already made it clear that he wants a sort of slimmed down monarchy. He wants it to be more like perhaps some of the continental monarchies, a bit, bit simpler, um, fewer royals, um, perhaps living in a slightly simpler style, more modern. So it will change as, as it has changed over the years. The other thing I like about the day itself, Katie, is the way that seemingly totally unconnected events get sucked into the coronation narrative. So the fact that Hillary and Tenzin Norgay become the first humans to summit Everest um, on pretty much close that day is described by some commentators as, quote, a coronation gift to the Queen. And I like to think of those two men in the death zone uh, near the top of Everest, looking at their watches and going, listen, we've got to crack on here because she's getting crowned tomorrow. If we don't make it by then, what sort of coronation gift will that be? Yeah, I'm sure that was at the, the top of their uh, consideration, wasn't it? Aside from trying to stay alive. Well, they did actually get up the day before. I mean, the news got back to London the day before and ah. it was decided actually to hold it over until the coronation day. Yeah, yeah. So there is a connection. So, Margaret, you shared 
with me and Tom, a delightful ditty from the era of the coronation, which was the golden coach as sung by Dickie Valentine. That was the version that I Such heard. Such a 1950s name, Dickie Valentine. Um, and uh, it's a very syrupy kind of ballady, almost like a love ballad to uh, the beautiful young queen. Do you, you don't happen to remember hearing that song as a child, do you? No, I don't. I, I found it just tooling around on the internet, but apparently it was a real hit in its time. I think it was top of the hit parade. And there were other ones too. There were coronation waltzes. And then there's some really serious music that was written by famous British composers like William Walton and Benjamin Britten. But there's a lot of popular music. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely a, a tip-top way to get to the top of the charts, you know. Write, write what you know and write what's happening in the newspapers. It is surprisingly smoochy, though, when you hear that number. Yeah. You're right, I, Katie. It doesn't, it's not a song full of, well, there is respect there, but it's it's as if the Queen, as you say, is a love interest. Yeah, she's a, a potential girlfriend, according yeah. to Dickie Valentine. I mean, he certainly is setting his cap for her. I don't know why he has ideas above his station, but he certainly did. More power to him. <laughs> I think it's what they, I think it's what they used to call palm court music. You know, the sort of syrupy music that we'd be playing around tea time when people would be doing tea dancing and eating little cakes and sandwiches. And no, the fact that he's called Dickie Valentine is so good. <laughs> <laughs> that tells you everything you need to know. Margaret, it's been wonderful having you on the show once again. Thank you so much for joining us and filling my head and Katie's head and all our listeners' heads with lots of fantastic new knowledge. Well, it's been lovely talking to you both. God save the Queen, Margaret. Long may she live. (laughs) (laughs) Here's something I find myself wondering, Katie, after all that knowledge we've had from Margaret. How would it feel at 24 years old to be going through that yourself? I would feel overwhelmed. Um, I have a tendency to want to take a lot of naps. (laughs) When I feel stressed, when it's all too much, I just am overcome with irrepressible sleepiness. So I would have gone into a quiet corner of Buckingham (laughs) Palace into a four-poster bed under many goose-down pillows and hidden away from the world. So I don't think I would have coped. What about you? Um, I might have used my five-and-a-half-meter cloak to just just (laughs) wrap it around me like a little cheeky duvet. Maybe the imperial crown would just slip down over my over my face give the impression that I'm just being a bit insouciant and actually I'm asleep underneath it sleep oh wait we're just both escaping through slumber (laughs) our strategy is slumber this is one of the many reasons Katie why we'll never be monarchs (laughs) we're going to be the king of snoozing and that's good enough for me So I think Billy was right. I mean, I I barely ever question Billy, but when Billy Joel writes a song, he's not going to waste a lyric on some deadbeat. My other thought, Katie, and it's a parochial one, is that it's one of the few references in Billy's song to something that is British or English and is probably the most uplifting one. Um, actually, yeah, the Beatles get a mention, don't they? As yeah. they had to. So that's the most uplifting one. But the other one, he talks about British politician sex, which we will explore in a future episode. But I would imagine it's Profumo Christine Keeler sitting backwards on a chair being sexy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, you know, you British people don't do very much. That's interesting. So he didn't really have a lot to work with. Uh, so that's why he had to stick to American topics. I'm just kidding. Well, Katie, when we do our follow-up show, which will, of course, be about all the people who feature on the cover of Sergeant Pepper, oh, we will yeah. have a more British lean. Oh, yeah, we will. That's right. Good thought. Okay, Katie, so that is the Queen. Who do we have on the show next week? Next week we have another boxer, and by the end of this whole rigmarole, I'm going to know so much (laughs) about punching competitions. It's Rocky Marciano, another American, because we're good at hitting people in the face. And uh, it's going to be the return of Steve Bunce, a.k.a. Bunce. (laughs) I think all boxing should be called punching competitions. (laughs) (laughs) No, heavyweight punching championship of the world. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcast. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.